Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Real Stories Tapes, True Crime, a weekly podcast from Real Stories, the online home of exclusive and award-winning documentaries from all over the world. My name is Stephanie Bauer, and this series takes some of Real Stories' most compelling true crime documentaries and turns them into podcasts. This episode is the third in a four-part story based on a documentary called Angel of Death. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, I'd suggest going back to listen to them. If you're joining us for the story now, though, you should know that Efren Saldivar, a respiratory therapist, has confessed to killing dozens of his patients at a California hospital. The police, though, don't have the evidence needed to keep him in custody. Some people's names and the name of the hospital have been changed. The story is narrated by Anthony Call. In Glendale, California, outside of Los Angeles, a small hospital was experiencing a rash of unexplained deaths. Patients like Trisha Johnson were fine one moment, and then suddenly went into an unexplained crisis. Trisha was in full arrest. The trauma team rushed to her room. But despite their efforts, they could not save her. The staff began to suspect someone in the hospital was causing the patients to die. They started to point the finger at one another. When the employees began to find drugs hidden in strange places, the suspicion grew. All the rumors seemed to point to one of the respiratory therapists, a man named Efren Saldivar. He was questioned by the police and shocked them with a confession. But without any evidence, they had to release him. To find proof of murder, police turned to thousands of complicated medical records that spanned over nine years. Glendale police detective Daniel Hinojosa. Because of the amount of potential victims involved, we were talking about probably the largest murder case this city has ever seen in its history. It might have made him probably the largest mass murderer in the history of the United States, for that matter. The media descended on Saldivar's home, 
His brother told reporters Efren had gone to stay with relatives. He also told reporters Efren was innocent. Larry Schlegel saw the news report on Saldivar's confession. Schlegel's mother, Eleonora, had died of respiratory failure at the hospital more than a year earlier. They had listed a number of conditions that seemed common to the people he had, had claimed to have killed. She was there in the time frames. Larry called the hotline and told investigators his mother fit the criteria they outlined. Schlegel told police how his mother's frequent hospital visits were a matter of increasing concern for him. It's always a scary thing when she began one of these bouts and, and need to be rushed in, but once the, uh, the medication kicked in and, and her lungs cleared up, then she was always ready to go home and, and get on with the rest of her life. She had come down with pneumonia and was having trouble breathing. She was resting comfortably when Larry came to visit her on New Year's Eve. My son and I stopped by to visit with her, and, and we were there for about an hour. And she was uh, sitting up and, and breathing about as well as she could and, and able to carry on a conversation for, for all of that hour. Eleonora was looking forward to going home. But the next day, Pasadena would be crowded with visitors for the Tournament of Roses parade in the Rose Bowl football game. Places a zoo for at least 24 hours in advance. So the doctors figured, we don't even have to think about this one. Um, you know, it's New Year's Eve. We'll decide after New Year's Day about a release date. They decided it would be okay for her to stay in the hospital a couple more days. When Eleonora Schlegel checked in, she had asked that she be classified as a DNR, or do not resuscitate. On the early morning of January 2nd, her vital signs were stable and she was planning to go home. Later that morning, the nurse returned to check on her. She had stopped breathing, and no pulse could be detected. Last time I talked to my mom, she had been well down the road of recovery, and it just hit you like a ton of bricks. To Larry, the possibility that his mother was poisoned seemed impossible to believe. We hear all sorts of things on the evening news that, you know, happened to other people, and that was basically my reaction. Oh, this is this is something that happens to other people. The detectives told Schlegel they would check into his mother's case. The police hotline was jammed with hundreds more calls just like Larry's. In the first three days, police received more than 230 messages from worried relatives whose family members had died at e cover-up. 
the media frenzy sent the hospital into damage control. They suspended the entire 44-member respiratory department, including Bob Baker. The atmosphere in the hospital changed almost immediately. And all of a sudden, you had you know, a massive investigation. It, it changed everything at that point. Then it, it was like a tornado hit the hospital. 39 employees were eventually cleared, but Evelyn Abrams and three others remained on suspension. The following week, Saldivar emerged from hiding. Appearing on nationwide television, he told two news magazine shows that he had made up the confession. The task force was shocked. Saldivar claimed he lied to the police, making up the confession because he was depressed and he wanted to die. So his rationale was that if I confess to killing a number of people, that I'll be found guilty of murder in a trial, sentenced to death by the state, and the state can do what I couldn't do for myself. Saldivar was taking his case to the public. Detective Hinojosa recalls the frustration the officers felt. Because I was being accused. Had this just been some kind of a sick joke that he had been playing on us by, by making this story up, we as investigators wanted to get to the truth. And if that was the truth, then we were obliged to take that information and figure out which side was the truth. Did he do it or did he not do it? The task force watched with frustration as Saldivar recanted his confession before an audience of millions. The heat was now on to prove that he was an angel of death. I wanted to die. A confessed serial killer was on the loose, but detectives had no idea who he may have murdered. It was a whodunit reversed, according to Glendale Police Detective Daniel Hinojosa. What we have here is a backwards case. Usually we have a victim, and from that victim, we go forward and try and find the suspect. In this instance, we had a suspect and no victims. And so that is completely the opposite of what we're used to handling. The police's prime suspect in the case was a respiratory therapist named Efren Saldivar. As police narrowed the list of Saldivar's suspected victims, they kept an eye on him. He was hiding out at the home of a former co-worker. The detectives also consulted criminal psychologist Chris Mohandi. They hoped his experience with other serial murderers would help them identify Saldivar's victims. He told the detectives they should not believe all of Efren's confession. They may use substances other than the ones that they say that they're using. So you may need to expand your search beyond the obvious into a much larger victim pool. We learned from other cases that these perpetrators will choose victims who are not just on their shift, who are not just fitting their criteria, but they will actually expand their hunt to other individuals. Dr. Mohandi gave the detectives a sketch of Saldivar's psychological makeup. My initial impression of Saldivar was an everyday guy who's somewhat socially awkward, a little geeky, um, doesn't quite fit in any particular group, desperately hungers to be liked and recognized by other people. Mohandi looked into Saldivar's past and found he chose his profession to counteract his sense of inferiority. It's interesting to look at why Saldivar became a respiratory therapist. Somebody came into the supermarket where he was working, had the uniform 
of the respiratory therapist, complete with stethoscope, I guess. And he was attracted to it because it looked medical, it looked official, it looked like it had authority and power imbued in it. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in 2021 on Saturday the 25th and 26th September. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, immerse yourself in forensic evidence, and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered with crime and investigation and a perfect opportunity to meet fellow true crime enthusiasts. Limited tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and we have an exclusive discount code for you. To claim your discount, enter the code REAL at checkout. That's R-E-A-L, REAL. Head over to crimecon.co.uk now. 
Saldivar mentioned his co-worker, Evelyn Abrams, knew about the killings and tried to stop him. What did you do after Investigators you granted her limited immunity in return for any information she could provide. At that time right there. She essentially came clean with us at this point and told us that, yeah, she knew that something was going on and that she was aware of a particular time when Efren came to her and said that he had inadvertently given a patient uh, pavulon. Investigators hoped she could point them to a specific patient, but Evelyn couldn't recall anything about the person. I don't remember. Old, young, male, female, anything? I didn't look at the patient. She did say that Saldivar told her about his criteria for deciding if a patient should die. And when he targeted one of her own patients, Evelyn warned him to leave the woman alone. Check on her. Make sure she's okay. Efren, leave her alone. Leave her alone. So there's no Evelyn's admission was incriminating, but it still didn't point investigators to any victims. But one nurse did remember a disturbing incident involving a patient named Linda Shirovsky. She had trouble breathing and was placed on oxygen. The nurse asked Saldivar to collect a blood sample. A couple of minutes after she left Shirovsky's room, the nurse said she saw Saldivar come out and call a code blue. nurse was surprised to find the patient totally unresponsive. Shirovsky had suddenly stopped breathing, and her muscles were flaccid, as if she were paralyzed. And yet the monitor showed that her heart was still beating strongly. Shirovsky's family had authorized a meds-only code. The doctors could medicate the patient, but they were forbidden to attempt any resuscitation. It took Linda Shirovsky 40 minutes to die. The nurse was confused because the woman had been responding well to treatment. Investigators placed Shirovsky on their list for exhumation. The detectives continued to monitor Saldivar's whereabouts as he changed jobs. They still feared he might try to flee. We believed he was thinking of taking off, and he had made a statement again through the surveillance. We saw him talking to somebody at the credit union when he made the withdrawal, and, and upon follow-up, the credit union said he made a comment about you know, fleeing the country. So that was a real concern all the way through, and that was another hidden pressure to get to the bottom of this case. We didn't want to lose him. Finally, find the evidence, and he's gone. Helping to find the evidence was Brian Andreessen of Lawrence Livermore's Forensic Science Center. He was struggling to create a test to find pavulon in exhumed human tissue. There was a, a number of people who voiced opinions that this could be a waste of money, could be a waste of time because the drugs are so low concentration. It was a long shot. Andreessen knew pavulon could sometimes be detected in urine. He planned to process tissue samples from the exhumed bodies 
to make a urine-like substance which could be tested with a mass spectrometer, a machine that determines the makeup of a substance by measuring the weights of its elements. He had no idea whether it would work. He had dedicated nearly a year trying to perfect the test. I got involved with it and I started just putting in the hours and going on and on and it would be 16 hour days, day after day with failure. I mean, it's, it's kind of depressing because I couldn't get anything to work. I almost abandoned my house. I was like living in the lab. The, my neighbors were worried because the lawn was never cut, things weren't picked up. Then the sacrifice began to pay off when Andreessen looked for help from a very unlikely source. We have a big program on the detection of chemical weapons and uh, their breakdown products in the environment. And I took one of these, what's called the solid phase extraction cartridges. They didn't work for chemical warfare agents. I says, well, let me just try this. And sure enough, all of a sudden, it trapped Pavilon. It was like one of those eureka moments. Andreessen had found his test. Now he just needed the police to find the victims. Saldivar's victims, however, remained mute and unknown. John Schwartz, who died after mysteriously falling out of bed, may have been one of them. His family filed a lawsuit, convinced Schwartz had died by Saldivar's hand. He admitted to murdering many people. And with all of the discrepancies with my grandfather's records and with him being on shift and dying so quickly, my grandfather was checked on at one moment, I believe it was like 3.30, and then he was deceased a half an hour later, a half hour to 40 minutes later. And that was just when the attending physician declared him dead, because they had to find someone to declare him dead. The whole thing was pretty suspicious. You know, he gave us reason to be suspicious of him by admitting to so many things. The task force followed up every lead. Detectives went to meet with Larry Schlegel. His mother died mysteriously while under Saldivar's care. I got a call from some detectives in the police department, and uh, their questions were much more specific, much more about you know what had been done with my mom's body, had she been cremated, had she been buried. Eleonora Schlegel had been buried. The detectives notified Larry his mother was a prime candidate for exhumation. By the middle of March 1999, the investigators had identified 20 possible victims. That was the largest number of bodies they could exhume. At the original time of death, doctors had declared that every one of those deaths was due to natural causes. McKillop and his detectives would have to prove them wrong. It was difficult for the victims' families, but Detective Mario Yagoda knew they understood the need for the exhumations. The majority of them uh, did cooperate and uh, were willing to help us. They, too, were looking for the truth. Because keep in mind, some of those family members had that suspicion all along. Uh, they knew uh, something just wasn't right when their loved one passed away. One of the first to be exhumed was the body of Myrtle Brower. The casket was enclosed in a burial vault made of concrete. A crew from the cemetery hoisted it from the ground. 
The team took soil samples for testing. They doubted pavulon would be present in the soil, but they could not afford to overlook anything. They anticipated Saldivar's defense attorney may argue that chemicals had seeped into the bodies from the surrounding earth. Detective Anthony Fuchsia made certain the officers were careful not to make any mistakes during the exhumations. We used the same uh, coroner's investigator each time we did an exhumation. We used the same coroner uh, pathologist to do the autopsies every time. Uh, the same uh, forensics technicians from our department do um, any collecting of samples of, of water or what have you at the grave sites. Um, we had the system down and we used the same people every time just for purposes of chain of custody so that an issue wouldn't arise as to how uh, things were collected. Cemetery workers removed the casket from the burial vault and loaded it into a van for the trip to the coroner's office. Brower's body had been buried for nearly two years. To positively identify the remains, the task force supplied the coroner with hospital x-rays, photo identification, and dental records. When all was ready, the investigators broke the casket's seal. They checked the mortuary band to positively identify the body. The remains were surprisingly well-preserved. Dr. Andreessen had warned them that if the remains were too decomposed, finding pavulon would be virtually impossible. The autopsies were unsettling for Detective Hinojosa. These were people that I felt I had almost come to know. At this point in the investigation, I had done a lot of research on these particular people. I had spoken to their family members. I had seen photographs of them. I knew about where they had lived, who they were, what their jobs or careers were. And to see these people now in this way is definitely difficult, to say the least. I could only hope at that time that it was, it meant something, that it was not all for naught. There's to be an elderly female, Caucasian. Dr. Andreessen directed the coroner to remove the tissues that would best reveal traces of pavulon. Each tissue sample went in a separate jar, and they all went into a box for transport to the Forensic Science Center. The officers continued to carefully handle all the evidence they collected. Our whole case hinges on these samples. We couldn't afford to have these things out of our sight for even a minute. I mean, these things had to be accounted for at all times. From the minute they were extracted from the body, to the minute they arrived at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, we had to be able to account for them. There was just no exception to that. Anything less could have meant our whole case. The next morning, McKillop and Curry made the drive. 334 miles up Interstate 5 along California's grapevine to preserve the chain of custody and deliver the tissue samples to the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Technicians there took custody of the autopsy samples. They'd spent months waiting for this moment. 
But Dr. Andreessen's test was unproven. If it failed, all the painstaking investigative work would be for nothing, and confessed serial killer Efren Saldivar would remain a free man. Coming up on the final episode, will the forensics work enable police to catch a killer, or will Efren Saldivar escape justice? This podcast episode is based on the documentary Angel of Death, is directed by Jeff Fine and produced by New Dominion Pictures. You can watch this story, plus many others, in full length for free if you go to Real Stories' YouTube channel. I am your host, Stephanie Bauer. If you liked this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review and help us spread the word. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Real Stories Docs. That's one word, Real Stories Docs, spelled D-O-C-S. See you next week. Until then, stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.